I started to think this week about, um, I started to think about uh, disguises because I, I, my witch here who sits in my corner of my bedroom all year long waiting for her day, this is her day, to make her appearance. And uh, I just love it because she has a baby, the witch. Uh, it's a witch baby. And uh, she, I, I'm, let's see. Oh, here's how you do it. No, it doesn't work that way. I was pretty sure. Oh, here it is. Yeah, yeah. Very careful. There you go. So that I can actually have her give this Dharma talk <laughs> and say, <laughs> and say that the truth is that uh, sometimes you see things and you don't recognize them. And sometimes people actually disguise themselves in order to not be recognized. And sometimes when we don't recognize what's going on, we might get frightened or we might want to avoid it and we might miss something that's important and we might miss having uh, some news about what to do. So the thing about masquerading and, having, and uh, causing the mind to not recognize what it should do, one of the, the tenets of um, mindfulness practice is that if you saw what was going on, you'd know what to do. If you really, really got what was going on. <laughs> is she all right? No, is she funny? That's all right. There you go. Um, am I not seeing something that's funny? Is it? Oh, all right. Uh, I took a picture of my dog sitting next to her looking out this morning. It's funny, the two of them together. Anyway, this is her day, so she has to be there. Uh, I thought about if when I was a child, uh, there was a there was a, a radio program on Sunday afternoon called The Shadow. Anybody remembers The Shadow? If you remember The Shadow, you are more than sixty-five years old. Actually, more than seventy, probably, or up around seventy, because The Shadow that was sponsored by Blue Coal. Do you remember that, Blue Coal? said, this is the story of Lamont Cranston. Long ago, Lamont Cranston, learned wealthy man about town, that's a thing that people used to be a man about town, but anyway, uh, learned the secret of how to cloud men's minds so they couldn't see him. And then he could be in a room, do you remember that, that that was his thing, Lamont Cranston, he clouded men's minds? That meant he was kind of like a, uh, 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 wasn't a cop, but he was on his own as an investigator of crime. And he'd be in a situation where suddenly it would be clear that the criminals were in that room, but he was always unarmed. He didn't shoot anybody, or, but he, they couldn't see him. And so he would trip them up or they would get all flustered and they'd say, oh, I did the crime. Or some way or another, he was the solver of crimes. They let, many years ago, he learned that secret of how to cloud men's minds so they couldn't see him. And I always think about them, him when I think about um, uh, the kinds of things that cloud my mind so I don't see clearly what to do. Do you know that the word mindfulness is what we are currently using as uh, contemporary, the contemporary word for mindfulness or practicing this, what we practice of paying attention. And in classical texts, 
uh, it was called vipassana. Vipassana is a um, Pali word, which is the language of the earliest scriptures. And vipassana translated means seeing clearly. So this is actually the practice of seeing clearly. And uh, somebody was saying recently that uh, it's like driving, driving in a, in a fog, as you do in the fall mornings here. You often get up and you start driving and it's a fog. And then all of a sudden you come out of the fog and you can see what's there. And you were, you were careful while you were driving in the fog, more careful than usual, really, on a, really watching to see that you don't have an accident. And then it gets clearer, you relax a little bit. It's not that you stop looking where you're going, but it's not quite so hard to see clearly. And I think the thing with seeing clearly or being confused by things is when we're not, when sometimes if we get confused, the problem is not the confusion, but that we don't know we're confused. If you see, if you find yourself in a fog, you know it. Say, whoa, fog, I better be really careful. Anger arises in the mind suddenly in a big whoosh. We maybe should say to ourselves, whoosh, that was a big whoosh of anger. That's like a fog. Maybe I should either pull over in my car for a while or... I better really sit up here and look at where I'm going. Years ago, I wondered if you remember, I just remembered it recently. Somebody came here on a Wednesday morning and said um, uh, that the day before, she had gotten some phone call that had upset her, made her angry, <coughs> and just before she left home. And then she left and she got in a car and she was all steamed up about it and turned on the ignition and backed out of the driveway into her neighbor's fender and smashed both cars very severely. No people got hurt, but two cars got bashed up and people could have gotten hurt, could have been cars, not people. And, and so she said, you know, I, I think I should put a little sign in my car about, think, this is, you know, you know it says on medicines, um, use caution while operating heavy machinery. <laughs> if you're taking antihistamines or something, should say that on the ignition been thinking about that for a couple of weeks now, and I've been thinking about the thing that clouds people's minds. And one of the things, which I thought it would be fun to read to you, the simplest ones that cloud the mind, are, uh, uh, are the hindrance energies. Hindrance energies are called hindrance in English. The Pali word for hindrance energies, I'll tell you the five of them right away, it are, is uh, kilesha. So in, in a classical text, it would say these are the five kileshas. They're, transfer, they're translated into English as hindrances because they are hindrances to clear seeing. When any one of these energies fills the mind, we can't make a good judgment. Um, if you ever got mad at your child, really mad, or an intimate partner, say, you get mad. In that moment, you're so mad, can't remember anything good about that person in that moment, right? It just like fills up the mind. You, like maybe you're living with somebody for 30, 40, 50 years, and all of a sudden they say something that just ticks off that switch. That's, uh, then the, sw the switch gets ticked off and the mind makes the thought, how can I be with this person? I can't be with this person. Look at that, they say this idiotic thing. They know I don't like this idiotic thing. They always say it again. I don't know, how can I be with it? I can't stand this. But you know, it's, it's so patently, 
a piece of nonsense thinking because you already stood it for 50 years. You know, that it's, it's, it's completely a self-destructing, uh, uh, idiotic thought. But the mind thinks it, and momentarily it believes it. And then it blows over, or that person says, whoops, I just said that stupid thing, so sorry. And then the mind settles down, and it's like the dust storm in the desert goes away. And then you see, here's this person and five million nice things about them. That's why I stayed 50 years. But you can't remember those things. The same with your child. You think, ah, oh. and then when it settles down, they're fabulous. They just did one thing that ticked off the mind and the mind fills up with either, it has to be different, I need it to be different, or I'm really furious about this. Um, I asked a group of, of, of um, uh, seniors at Catherine Branson School, where I was teaching yesterday morning for an hour in a religion class, I said, we were talking about negative energies in the mind. So I said, name the negative energies that you can think of. So anger and revenge and uh, uh, lust. Uh, well, you have to be careful with them about saying lust because it doesn't seem like a negative energy to them. Uh, <laughs> Like, uh, uh, I mean, it's, it's a newly discovered pleasant energy, so you have to be, yeah, so you say things like uh, intolerable yearning, you know, that they know about that, uh, it's uncomfortable, and uh, uh, boredom, and self-doubt, and jealousy, and envy, and uh, then I said, what, what's the worst one? Which is what the most, which feels the worst? What do you think they said? Envy. Envy. They say envy fills the mind. It really is like a, the mind feels really, really like it can't get out of itself. I, and maybe that's the 17-year-old mind. I don't know. Envy does not feel good to me. But what, the, the thing that's true about the, the five traditionally mentioned hindrance energies are... Um, sensual uh, desire, that your mind is pretty relaxed, and all of a sudden, I have to have that. Whether it's a, 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 a sensual thought about a person, or uh, you walk by a pizza parlor and a smell comes out, and all of a sudden you think, I'm hungry. I'll, all of a sudden you're in the pizza parlor ordering a slice, and you don't actually know what happened, that you're in the pizza parlor eating or in the Dunkin' Donuts. But in between, you smelled it, it was pleasant, the pleasant smell registers, and then all of a sudden you have the thought, I'm hungry. You weren't hungry before, but you have the thought. Uh, <laughs> I suddenly remember Michaud in that moment. I was a very, very picky eater when I was a child. And my father used to say, la petite vient de la mangeon. Start in. <laughs> Start in to eat, and you'll develop an appetite. <laughs> sometimes that happens, but sometimes the appetite develops because you smell the smell, or something entices you, or something looks good. <coughs> or you're walking past a shopping center, and all of a sudden you see a certain sweater in the window of Nordstrom's. And you didn't need that sweater. Two minutes before, you have a closet full of sweaters. But you walk through, and all of a sudden, you stop, because that's an attractive sweater. And then you look at the price, and it's not too bad. And then you think, I could wear that for this, this, and this. Then you think, nah. 
I, I'm late. I won't buy this today. No, no, I don't even have the sweater. So then you go a little bit. But the sweater has now worked its way into your mind. And it's there. Isn't that true? And it hangs around there. It says, go back, look at me. You could buy it on Nordstrom's online. You didn't even have to buy it here. No time at all. When you go home, you can just go online, click, click, click. Somebody told me the other day they got up in the middle of the night and they were feeling quite restless. So they bought two pair of boots on Zappos <laughs> in the middle of the night. If you, that you don't have to feel like uncomfortable for one second. You can't sleep in the middle of the night. You can get up and buy boots on Zappos. <laughs> So, or, you know, anything actually in the middle of the night. So the, the time between an unpleasant feeling and doing something. I've been reading Joseph's new mindfulness book, which I heard is just out. And I've been reading it with a friend weekly, like chapter by chapter, very, very slowly. And there's a line where he says, most people think that if they have some bad feeling in their mind and body, they have to put some good feeling in to counteract it, rather than, and you know, so that's why you buy the boots in the middle of the night. It's counteracting the bad feeling of neediness or boredom or something. And he's saying, really, the truth is, all you need to do is bring attention to it. Bring attention to it. You see, this is just a feeling. This is just a thought. And what's more, it's transient. It's passing. It doesn't have to be a big deal. What I was going to read to you, just. Um, I thought about it. I don't often read you something that... Anyway. But this... Oh, I was going to tell you five hindrances. I need that. I hate that. That's another one. That has to get out of here. I can't stand that. Er. The next one is... Um, usually in the list, the next one is called Sloth and Torpor, which is a kind of a Victorian thing to call it. Because uh, sloth is one of the seven deadly sins in kind of Victorian prayer books. But it really means no energy. I really, I'm out, of, I'm, out of, I'm out of energy for this. I quit. I'm not doing it. It's a loss of, uh, its opposite energy is a kind of a frenzied energy in the mind. I better do something. I'm just so antsy. And on a, my, in a period of, city, of meditation in a whole room, sometimes it may happen to you where you think to yourself, if the bell doesn't ring now, I'm going to explode. You ever have that feeling? <laughs> I can't sit here another minute. Why can't you sit here another minute? You always do. You know, there's a, I used to have these thoughts, I'm going to sit here and suddenly I'll explode like a volcano. I'll be the first, per, first person in history to explode while sitting on a zapper. <laughs> so that you see two things. You see, first of all, the idiotic thought. And you see, second of all, uh, the drama that I that I make out of everything, you know, I just make a big story. Of, I think actually it contributes to being able to write. You have to have like a kind of a dramatic flair. You just don't. I'm so restless. I'll be very uncomfortable. You have to think I'm so restless. I'll explode. That makes it some. That makes it a story. So uh, lust and anger and torpor and restlessness and doubt, which is really described in the text. As a wobbly mind can't make up its mind, doesn't feel self-confident, doesn't feel sure of itself. So uh, I, uh, a long time ago, like 25, 20 years ago, I was writing about usually people who are confused and unhappy feel as if their minds are filled with one particular difficult energy. I'm filled with anger, or I'm burning with desire, or I'm besieged by doubt. 
when they hear about someone who claims to have had a multiple hindrance attack, because that's the name of a thing, a multiple <laughs> hindrance attack, they think, oh dear, that sounds really bad. Maybe they have the idea that a multiple hindrance attack has the same relationship to a single hindrance attack as pneumonia has to sniffles. Actually, every hindrance attack is a multiple hindrance attack. Think about it. Suppose you fall in love with someone. Lust fills the mind. You think about that person all the time. For a while, it's quite pleasurable. Then, as your work piles up in front of you and your boss is getting annoyed, you think, I'd better shape up. Aversion arises. I'll put these thoughts out of my mind. But they stay. Attempts to put the thought, the love object, out of the mind are ineffective. I wish these thoughts would go away. By now, the work is even more piled up and the agitation is arising because the loved person has not telephoned as he or she promised. Doubt arises. Once again, I have made the stupid mistake of falling in love with someone who doesn't care about me. What an idiot I am. More agitation. Here comes my boss. The work isn't done. My mind is in a turmoil. Torpor takes over. I'm exhausted. There, five difficult mind states, all cascading in one after the other. First one after the first one has gotten a foothold. I'll skip this whole part. <laughs> it's pretty funny, but I'll skip it anyway. <laughs> I had a multiple hindrance attack on October 31st, 1985. That's why I wanted to read you the story. It's an anniversary story. I had a multiple hindrance attack on October 31st, 1985. Is that 30 years ago? Yeah. In Barry, Massachusetts, because I remember just where I was sitting. It's funny when you remember a certain thing, you know where you were in the room. Uh, in Barry, Massachusetts, over a piece of grape bubblegum. It was Halloween. I had been practicing meditation intensively for some weeks in a wonderful monastery that says loving kindness over the front door. I was in a wonderful mood. I felt serenely ecstatic, if that exists as a possibility. I was full of delight about my practice. I had terrific confidence in myself. I was seeing things with incredible clarity. And I figured I was well on my way to keeping it that way. When I entered the meditation hall for the last evening sitting, I was delighted and surprised with how beautiful it looked. The resident staff of the monastery, people who looked after the retreatant's needs, had decorated the room for Halloween. All around were jack-o'-lanterns carved with great artistic care and aglow with candlelight. As I approached my place in the room, I noticed that the staff had put a candy on each person's meditation cushion as a Halloween treat. How lovely, I thought. Then I noticed that the treat on my cushion was grape bubblegum. I don't like grape bubblegum. I had a moment of aversion. I did not want the grape bubblegum. Other people had better stuff. And I wanted what they had. A moment of aversion, followed by a moment of desire, but never would I have considered exchanging with someone else, so I sat down, grape bubblegum in hand. Then I had another moment of desire. My friend Roger, occupier of the cushion in front of mine, had not yet returned to the room, and I felt like giving him my bubblegum. I imagined he would be happy because then he would have two Halloween treats. Good thinking, I congratulated myself. Now you have turned your negativity into a happy state. I put my bubble gum next to the candy on his cushion and watched him come in. 
see the two treats, pick them up, and sit down. Immediately the thought arose in me, what a dumb thing you just did. How could you have put your gum on Roger's cushion? Now he knows that someone has given him a treat, and he will probably think he has a secret admirer, and that thought will probably stir up his mind from what I'm sure was tranquility, and I, who presumably am a serious and wise meditator, will have been the cause of his agitation. By that time, I was totally dismayed about how impulsively I had acted and filled with doubt about how much wisdom I had anyway. Furthermore, I was exhausted. The whole event had taken about 30 seconds from serene ecstasy to demoralize confusion in less than a minute. So, it's funny, I remember it exactly. Uh, really, we are one minute away from the most beautiful mind state cascading into who knows what just because some it, one of those hindrances arises. I don't like great bubblegum. I have to get rid of it. Ah, ah, there's a way. I'll get rid of it and I'll give it to him as a gift. Da, 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 da. And then all the feelings. How about if you just sit down with a great bubble gum and think, I'll take it home with me next week. Sometimes you get great, sometimes you get something you like, sometimes you don't. How about not agitating the mind? How about thinking to myself, even after I do that whole thing, about not, instead of thinking, what an idiot I am, you think, oh dear, I acted impulsively. Well, that happens sometimes, you know. That was an impulsive action. Maybe I won't do it another time. There's always a way to subvert making a big story about it. You don't have to make a big story about it. But we make big stories about it. I was thinking about um, I was thinking about how those, uh, those kinds of states are like uh, pirates. They abduct, they kidnapped. I was thinking about, uh, I was, thinking about uh, I, was, I was imagining my next door neighbor coming over in a pirate costume. I said ghost earlier, but you know, there's always a few pirates that come with eye patches and swords, and they feel very piratish, but you don't feel worried about them because you know that they're the little girl from next door now being a pirate. But we don't see those thoughts come in our mind and kidnapping our attention so that we're at the next thing that we're doing and we're talking to somebody, but actually we're not there. Part of our attention is back in Nordstrom's window where we left it the last. You know, that, uh, that uh, Somebody said something about, recently I've been adopting this phrase, they said that practicing mindfulness is like pulling yourself together. They get a grip. What's actually going on? Let's clear out the mind and see what's actually going on. See, I, want, I, I was thinking about going, this is really from the, um, oh, almost, from the trivia, like 30 years ago, I gave Roger Walsh a piece of purple bubble gum, and it's on my mind to really, uh, really noticing how easily the mind gets hijacked. Uh, I was thinking about um, the, 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 the possibility. When you think about how this is for you, I've been reading some articles. This month, um, this week's New Yorker has a very long and interesting article about the 
about three, two or three new books that have come out about uh, the cyber age that we're in and all the machinery that we have that we can talk to people at an instant. While we were sitting here in the middle of the quiet, I suddenly had the thought, I'm not sure my cell phone is off. So discreetly, I take out the cell. I thought discreetly take out the phone. You have to check, sound is on. Okay, I think sound is off. You put it down, you think, phew. Okay, so I really would rather it didn't ring in the middle. But suppose it had rung in the middle, you know? Uh, <laughs> I, you know, I, it was a couple of years ago, I was back in New York, and uh, uh, my phone, I, I don't think this one does, but I had an earlier phone that when you turn it off, it went dee 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 So uh, I was, sad to say, at a memorial service in a church on the, on the Upper West Side, a church on Morningside Heights, hemmed in with a lot of alumni from my same class at an alumni reunion. And they had a, a big memorial service for everybody who has died from whenever until now, so that's a lot. And, but you, you want to be respectful, so I'm sitting there, and it's very solemn, they're reading a list of names, and then I'm thinking to myself, suddenly my cell phone is on. And what's going to happen, I, first of all, it could ring. On the other hand, if I carefully take it out in my palm, and turn it off, it's going to go diddly 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 dee in the middle of that, so you don't want that to happen. And now I could stand up, and anybody ever had this thing? You know, before I go to the opera, I usually leave my phone in the car just to be sure that I don't even have the thought while I'm in there is my phone turned off because it's already an alarming thought. And it could be off, but then you think, yes, I turned it off. You sure you turned it off? People who have like a, the tendency to fret, it went in doubt fret, say, well, yeah, I think I turned it off. But maybe I didn't turn it off. What if I didn't turn it off? In the meantime, your, your whole mind is not there in that experience because your mind is in your purse. And the imagined, <laughs> and, and the imagined ignominy of having it ring in the middle of the worst passage that it could possibly ring. But there are these books, maybe I'll read a little bit to you. Uh, that's a very interesting opening paragraph where it's talking about some of, the, uh, some of the messaging around Facebook and Twitter and uh, uh, what is that other thing? LinkedIn and uh, all of that stuff that I don't even know all the minor things that you can do with each other is that you never have to be disconnected from anyone. You take your whole community with you all the time. And uh, let me see where this guy says this. This, the, this. this writer is quoting a writer who wrote uh, 50, uh, maybe 100 years ago, Life in a Modern City. Oh, Siegfried Krakauer a luminary in the literary world of the Weimar Republic, published a feisty essay in the Frankfurter Zeitung. 
Trained as an architect, Krakauer was an astute observer of modernity and its impact on the life of the city. He followed in the footsteps of his one-time teacher, Georg Simmel, the sociologist whose 1903 essay, The Metropolis and Mental Life, argued that overstimulated urban dwellers were prone to develop a blasé attitude, a coping mechanism that blunted their ability to react to new sensations. 1903, he said that. The uh, contemporary sociologists are talking about incoming freshmen in colleges being tested on a scale that measures um, level of compassionate ability are doing worse and worse every year. And they are hypothesizing that people have a million friends, in, or many friends, in cyberspace, but they don't get to sit with people and look them in the eye and actually see what they're feeling and have actual one-to-one -one relationships. How can somebody have 6,040 friends, you know? Or 150,000 friends, or... President Obama tweets to how many million people every day, uh, which I, you know, I think is fine if it's President Obama. I wouldn't mind having a tweet from him, but not, <laughs> not 350 other people every day. You know, the, the, you could, and I'm, I'm actually not connected to very much apparatus in that way because I think it's, it's just indiscriminate sharing for, for me, so I don't want to do it, but... You may be even one of my Facebook friends, which I, uh, anyway, Spirit Rock runs my Facebook page, and I'm happy to, for them to do it, because if I want to say something to a large community of people who want to know where I am, that's how they can tell people I'll be here or there or someplace this weekend. But my friends I talk with on the phone, or I meet them for lunch, or we do something together so that we're really looking at each other or really having voice to voice. But look, this is 100, 110 years ago, they're worrying that people are getting kind of blasé, they forgot how to respond. Then this other guy, Krakauer, who we started, he quoted his teacher, Simmel. Krakauer's remedy to the fact that there's too much input his, Krakauer's remedy was simple. He said, the remedy is extraordinary radical boredom could reunite us with our heads. On a sunny afternoon while everyone is outside, one would do best to hang about in the train station or better yet stay at home, draw the curtains, and surrender oneself to one's boredom on the sofa, he wrote. Only then could one flirt with ridiculous, embarrassing, unscripted ideas, achieve achieving a kind of bliss, quote-unquote, that is almost unearthly. He went on saying, eventually one becomes content to do nothing other than be with oneself without knowing with what, what one actually should be doing. A popular slogan, uh, the, now this writer is saying, a popular slogan of the 1968 generation was boredom is counter-revolutionary. Cracker, Krakauer would have disagreed. For him, radical boredom wasn't an excuse for indolence or passivity. It was inherently political, allowing us to peek at a different temporal universe to develop alternative explanations of our predicaments and even to dare to dream of different futures. Isn't that really inspiring? Mm -hmm. 
I thought about when we go on a retreat, we go into a situation of potentially radical boredom. <laughs> Nothing happens there, really. The biggest thing that happens is uh, every once in a while there's a mountain lion that you can see on the top of, but rarely. You know, in all the 20 years here, I've seen the mountain lion maybe twice. Every once in a while, uh, oh, the lunch is the big event of the day, break the boredom, because it's an interesting surprise every day, and it's good. Really, it, it really enlists all of the senses, the lunch. People really wake up in the lunchtime. It's really a tonic for the mind, which is otherwise slugging along. But There's the lunch. But it's such a relief not to have the phone ring all the time and not to have your computer sitting over there, which even though it doesn't speak, in fact, when you go by it, says to you, you know, you could just check to see if there's anything in your inbox. Doesn't your computer say that to you as you're going by? When you get up first thing in the morning, you go by it, it says, yoo-hoo, I'm over here. You want to check your mail? It's a, it's a radical thing to not be in constant joined at the hip with with the with the computer, with the iPad. And I love that stuff. I have an iPad, I have a computer, I have a, a smartphone, and I think they're fabulous. I took a picture of my dog this morning with the witch, and I texted it to my granddaughter uh, uh, in Palo Alto going to school, and then she texted me back. So I love that stuff, and I love that I can do it. But I I really was thinking about Every once in a while, I leave home, I get in my car, and I don't have my phone with me. That was like a sinking feeling. You ever have a sinking feeling when your phone isn't with you? Isn't that weird? We used to leave home, I know. We used to leave home not only without our phone on our person, but with our phone connected to the wall by a wire. You couldn't even take it from room A to room B. How many people remember when you couldn't take a phone from room A to room B? How many people remember when the phone was hanging on the wall and you had a, yeah. <laughs> How many people remember die? Uh -huh. Or not having a phone. Or not having a phone or needing to go someplace and place a phone with an operator who then said cabine one or two or three and you went in that cabine and you shouted. <laughs> Because, in fact, I think the, the connections weren't that good. But everybody wasn't, uh, <laughs> we weren't plugged into everything. And the, the, so there's not a question in my mind about whether the fact that I can be in touch with my granddaughter here and my friends in France and my friends in Sweden, I can let them, I can not only be in touch with them about important stuff, I can send them a picture of my dog sitting with a witch if I want to. But... The question of feeling, do I need this? Really, what I want, I have two things left that I want to be sure to talk about. One of them is how, uh, some other examples of how the mind gets clouded and what essential wisdom we don't see, I think as a, as a species, really. Um, and then what, how, what, we could, what I could do to pay attention not to not having cell phones or iPads or any of these things, but being alert to the arising of imperative in the mind. Because I think the word imperative, which I started to use a few years ago, when you think about the Four Noble Truths, the first Noble Truths being everyone is challenged. Life is challenging. 
Life is mindfulness practice. Every minute, something else is challenging you. The shower is too hot, too cold, the freeway to this, to that. They called, they didn't. A million, someone's sick, not sick. Challenges all the time. And we, ma and we manage them. Being an adult is meeting with the challenges, small and large. It's not a big deal. First noble truth of the Buddha is life is, is um, challenging. Everything, everything is fundamentally dukkha, fundamentally unsatisfactory. Not suffering, just unsatisfactory because you can't get a complete gestalt that stays. You have to keep attending to the fact that everything is in flux and moving. And the second noble truth says that suffering is, uh, it's usually translated into English as um, desire as the cause of suffering, uh, which makes it sound like somehow you uproot desires. But as long as we live, we're going to want to uh, slow down when we're out of breath or lie down and sleep when we're tired or eat when we're hungry or be sexual when we feel like that. I mean, there are all kinds of uh, sense desires that come up in the body that are regular desires of being a human being. We don't stop being hungry. Even we ate today, tomorrow we'll be again hungry. So it's not about not having sense desires. It's really about um, the sense desire being so overwhelming that we can't think straight. It's the imperative of the sense desire. Uh, sometimes if we were really starving, that imperative gets enormous, but uh, but really it's because it's life-threatening uh, at that point, and you should, you, it's supposed to. I mean, if I walk out in the street uh, and, I, and I, a, a bus comes around the corner, I wouldn't even say careening. I wouldn't even say I then have the desire to get out of its way, and so I leap out of the path of it. I think that even goes, uh, subverts even the whole uh, thinking mechanism that we're on some levels, you know, we're we're animals, and we have reflexes that just jump us mercifully out of the way. So I think the operative word is not uh, uh, desires. Uh, the operative word for me is imperative, having to do with those desires. If you're with some people and you're hoping the evening will end because it's really tedious to be with them. That's a desire. It's a desire to get rid of them. But most of us hold it together. You know, most of us hold it together. And we realize that by, but because we tell ourselves, well, half hour more and these folks will leave or whatever it is. Uh, if there were an imperative in the mind. You know, before when I said, if I'm sitting on my zafu and I think I'm so restless, this, this, this sitting has to end. The, the idea that something has to be different, that there's an imperative, is really what causes suffering. What not causes is suffering in the mind, is that ten, extra tension in the mind other than what is necessary for that situation. Situation is manageable, and the tension is extra. My friend Sharon calls them add-ons. The tension is what usually precludes us seeing straight and thinking, what can we do? I was thinking, I had a, 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 I didn't know what to think about this, so I decided to bring it with me and tell you about it and have you help me think about it. I read, a, I read an article in, the, um, in Sunday's New York Times, and it was, it was interesting. It was well-written. I read it. It's in the sports section, and it tells one of these you know, touching stories. There's a story that circulates every Christmas 
about um, uh, a, a Christmas Eve in World War One. You probably all know that story. It, 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 it comes up every Christmas on everybody's email. Some 1914, 1915, some Christmas Eve during World War One, uh, where uh, German and uh, British troops were shelling each other across a battlefield, and people were dying in huge amounts. And then on Christmas Eve, they had a truce till the next day. And during the truce, I might get already goose pimples, I'm not even, I haven't told you the story yet. Um, during the truce, somebody uh, started to sing Silent Night on one side. Um, and the Germans are singing Stille Nacht on the other side. And then they hear each other singing the same song. It make you weep when you hear that. And they go out and they meet each other in the middle and they pass each other drinks of alcohol out of their flasks. Maybe they play a little soccer. I don't know what, they couldn't play soccer in the middle of the night, but it's some, they did something together. They drink alcohol, they change, they, you know, they give each other drinks out of there. They sing together. They go back into their trenches and the following morning, they start to shoot each other again. And you think to yourself, what essential piece of wisdom have these people not gotten into their mind? that those people over there, they sing the same songs, they drink the same rum, they have families, they look like me, actually. Even in that particular war, they looked like each other. Nobody was a different color. Uh, they, they, you know, it's hard to think this is my enemy. And this 18-year-old kid on the other side, he's not anybody's enemy. I mean, it, the war is made actually by, undoubtedly, we think government people and industrialists and bankers behind, however you, you're, you understand the causes of war. But the causes of war are not these 18-year-olds. They're not having a fight with each other. Why are they killing each other? It's a bizarre thing. I keep thinking, why, why have we not come to a time when, what, when we stop and say, wait a minute, my mind has been fogged by ideology. My mind has been fogged by the idea that if I get conscripted, I have to go up and fight. My, my mind has been even caught up in the ideology. I believe the ideology, whatever it is, freedom or democracy or Lebensraum or whatever ideology it is, I believe it, I'm gonna fight for it. Why don't we think about what's really true? These people are just like me. They have families. They wanna go home, I wanna go home. Let's stop doing this. It's like one mind moment away, this person is just like me. This is the same kind of an article in a way it's a World War II article, and uh, apparently at the end of World War II, there were the Nuremberg trials that were the uh, trials of Nazi, of Gestapo officers who had participated in, directly in the extermination of millions of, uh, a lot of people, uh, not just Jews, Jews and um, everybody else who was a group that they wanted to exterminate. Really, it's such a hard word to say. And uh, this is a story about two American clergy, a Lutheran, a Lutheran minister and a Catholic priest, both of whom had um, uh, enlisted to go as clergy because they felt that they could minister to people who were in in uh, difficulty. I remember seeing that in, um, 
in, in the old days in, in war movies and thinking about uh, every time I would see clergy on one side or another blessing this mission. I mean, how can you be blessing a mission to go out and kill other people? It's, uh, but, you know, I, I don't want to say bad on these people because I, what mystifies me is that we don't see through the fog of we could stop this. Human beings could stop killing each other. That's a very big piece of um, wrong view. We, we have to continue. Human beings have always been like that. They have. But presumably we're waking up to the fact that human, we're not as tribal as we used to be. Maybe the cyber world is going to make us less tribal than we used to be. I have a lot of thoughts about that. And the reason it's in this particular week's paper is because uh, when it came to the countdown of uh, there were 11 people, I think, who were condemned to be hanged. And uh, they were being hanged just in the middle of the World Series week. And we're in the World Series now. So, uh, and somehow everybody got very interested in whether the Red Sox or the, I forget what was the other team, doesn't matter, Cardinals, I think. Red Sox, St. Louis or Boston was going to win. Just as people are now all captivated by that. And they were so captivated, here are people, they're going to get hung tomorrow. And they're hanging on the scores of the baseball game. And these two ministers, part of their ministry was running back and forth. They didn't have a radio to headquarters where they had a shortwave radio that was relaying over, of all things, the score of the, of the World Series. So these can go back, they could go back and tell the guys that we're going to get hung the next day. And you read the whole story, and then they're with them, and they administer last rites, and they do everything they're going to do. And you think, why at some point? When? It's so ludicrous that we run to minister by passing people's time, by talking about World Series, administering last rites, you know, absolving them of, of what they've done. And then, but nobody comes home and says, okay, now these two men who I really applaud for their having signed up to bring solace to people no matter what, first of all, they came home and discovered they had tons of hate mail from people who hated them for offering solace, the Lutheran minister got a lot of, when he died, his son said he had drawers and drawers of hate mail from people who hated him for offering solace to dying people. You know, people's minds get so filled with, with thoughts that um, what if all the leaders in the world got together and said, let's not do this. People are people. You know, the main, uh, uh, I get, I get all whipped up from that. Don't you get whipped up from that? I can't just charge on. I have to think about that a little bit. I get tired from that. Not tired, but it's exhausting to think about. How can we have a humanity that is so not woken up to we are doing something amazingly wrong, killing each other and killing the planet, and everybody's saying simultaneously. I mean, people have been saying for years and years, you read... Uh, there's a new book out about uh, Woodrow Wilson. And I read little bits of it because it was excerpted in um, someplace else that I read. And uh, he was uh, so fervent about the League of Nations. Let's get together and have a League of Nations and 14 points and let's vow no more war. It had been awful 
that, that First World War. And then the United States did not join the League of Nations because they wanted to be, they, they had a, the, the, the powers that be that shaped the electorate wanted to be isolationists. You know, we are not part of the whole world. We're separate. We're a whole ocean away. And now, of course, the whole world is nobody's anywhere. Not a, a whole ocean doesn't prevent nuclear fallout from floating over the whole world or pollution from floating or the seas from being contaminated. I think that in the moments where someone dies or in the moments that we have a sense of our own mortality, I was thinking maybe that's the thing that most of all keeps the mind from being clear. We don't remember. I don't want to say that we. Maybe everybody else remembers. I don't remember all the time. It's not front in my mind that nothing really matters except living or dying and taking care of people as long as we can. You know, Every time I get annoyed at somebody, they shouldn't have said that. What I really mean is I wish they hadn't hurt my feelings. But in the big sphere of things, it's not that important. This morning I was thinking about I might not get the certain email that I thought I needed before I left and I was already later than I wanted to be leaving. And actually, it turns out I forgot the stuff I need for this afternoon. It doesn't matter. But the thing is that nothing matters. The email that I thought I needed didn't come. It doesn't matter. It'll come later. The stuff that I had to bring, I forgot to bring. It doesn't matter. I'll call somebody at home. They'll bring it. I'll meet them halfway. Something will happen. Or I'll sit without stuff. I'll work on my puppet. Or I'll, I'll do something. It doesn't matter. You can come to a knitting group without knitting. If you think about it, nothing is as complicated as you need. If I come to the airport without my uh, passport, uh, it's not the end of the world. It's not, it, you know, it's a little bit of an inconvenience, but it's not the end of the world. I'll go home, get the passport, and I'll go tomorrow. Have to, but then you have to pay a little bit of a fine. Okay, you pay a little bit of a fine to make phone calls. Nothing is irrevocable except who's living and who's not. That's, that's about it. And even, even that, when you think in the end of it, we are all finite. Um, we're all finite, sooner or later. This is a wonderful poem, though. This is Billy Collins. I think it's a wonderful poem. I hope you like it. This is Billy Collins from a book called Picnic Lightning. And it's from a poem. I'll read you the poem called Picnic Lightning. And uh, there's a line that starts, before the poem starts, there's a line out of Lolita by Nabokov that says, it's a line out of that. My very photogenic mother died in a freak accident, Picnic Lightning when I was three. Yeah, that's like a whole, you hear one sentence. My very photogenic mother died in a freak accident, picnic lightning, when I was three. It's like you already know this person. So this is Billy Collins. It's, it is possible to be struck by a meteor or a single engine plane while reading in a chair at home. Safes drop from rooftops and flatten the odd pedestrian, mostly within the panels of the comics. But still, we know it is possible, as well as the flash of summer lightning, the thermos toppling over, spilling out on the grass. And we know the message can be delivered from within. The heart, no valentine, decides to quit after lunch 
The power is shut off like a switch. Or a tiny dark ship is unmoored into the flow of the body's rivers, the, bla the brain a monastery defenseless on the shore. This is what I think about when I shovel compost into a wheelbarrow and when I fill the long flower boxes, then press into rows the limp roots of red impatience, the instant hand of death always ready to burst forth from the sleeve of his voluminous coat. Then the soil is full of marvels, bits of leaf like flakes off a fresco, red-brown pine needles, a beetle quick to burrow back under the loam. Then the wheelbarrow is a wilder blue, the clouds a brighter white, and all I hear is the rasp of the steel edge against a round stone, the small plants singing with lifted faces, and the click of the sundial as one hour sweeps into the next. Is it good? Well, then here's one more because it's, this is called shoveling. It's in the same driveway, you know. It is. Shoveling snow with the Buddha. In the unusual iconography of the temple or the local walk, you would never see him doing such a thing, tossing the dry snow over the mountain of his bare, round shoulder, his hair tied in a knot, a model of concentration. Sitting is more his speed, if that's the word for what he does or does not do. Even the season is wrong for him. In all his manifestations, it's not, is it not warm and slightly humid? Is this not implied by his serene expression, that smile so wide it wraps itself around the waist of the universe? But here we are, working our way down the driveway, one shovel full at a time, we toss the light powder into the clean air. We feel the cold mist on our faces. And with every heave, we disappear and become lost to each other. In these sudden clouds of our own making, these fountain bursts of snow. This is so much better than a sermon in church, I say out loud, but Buddha keeps on shoveling. This is a true religion, the religion of snow and sunlight and winter geese barking in the sky, I say. But he's too busy to hear me. He has thrown himself into shoveling snow as if it were the purpose of existence, as if the sign of a perfect life were a clear driveway. You could drive, you could back the car down easily and drive off into the vanities of the world with a broken heater fan and, and a song on the radio. All morning long we work side by side, me with my commentary, and he inside the generous packet of his silence until the hour is nearly noon and the snow is piled high all around us, then I hear him speak. After this, he asks, can we go inside and play cards? <laughs> Certainly, I reply, and I will heat some milk and bring cups of hot chocolate to the table while you shuffle the deck and our boots stand dripping by the door. Ah, says the Buddha, lifting his eyes and leaning for a moment on his shovel before he drives the thin blade again deep into the glittering white snow. Billy Collins is really too much, you know? <laughs> yeah. He's, Billy Collins is actually at City Arts and Lectures next Wednesday. Next Wednesday. Mm -hmm. uh -huh. He's also going to be reading at um, yeah. When is he doing that? 
book passage is right around our corner. And Dominican. Oh yeah, I didn't think they could fit enough people into book passage. So do you know when it is? No, I still don't. But it's too soon. Check it out. I will. It's also on West Coast Live, November 9th. That's Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm very happy to hear about that. I, I, uh, I'm a very big fan of that. Well, you see that. So we're, we are here again next week, are we? Yes, I am here. Well, I, am, I think I am here next week. And Nancy's here. And our books are here next week. We are going to give away books. Is it true that you're the only man here today? I think it's true. Oh, there you are, Tony. Okay, Mijo was blocking your head, and I thought, this is so interesting. That's never happened before, but there's Tony. So it hasn't happened yet. Okay. Well, bravo for the two of you. Okay. <laughs> may all beings, may us, as we go out into the world, so continue in our mind the zeal for clarity in our own minds on behalf of clarity in our communities and our relationships and our larger communities and this whole world. May the zeal that we have for that be a positive force in this world. May all beings come to the end of suffering. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.